0: One, Thank you for joining us today. Uh, today's webinar is called Getting Back to Business While in Quarantine, and obviously everyone is aware at this point that the prevalence of the virus has caused a number of impacts on businesses in general, and particularly with respect to litigation services and how we service our clients and navigate the court system. So today's Webinar is basically to provide tips and information about the emergency rules that courts have imposed, how to navigate those emergency rules, some consequences for maybe not fulfilling those rules, and then moving into a discussion of if there's an extended quarantine, how to manage your litigation business. So forward. Uh, This is the agenda for today's webinar. We'll discuss, after introducing the panelists, we'll discuss uh, court closures as I spoke about, what constitutes a litigation emergency, how to navigate the prolonged quarantine if it comes to pass, and then we'll move to a question and answer session. And as said during the introduction, please use the Q&A function in Zoom in order to Uh, submit your questions, and we will hold the questions for the end. And without further ado, I'll have each of the panelists introduce themselves, starting with uh, the Honorable Nancy Holtz and then moving to Deb Curran.
1: Okay, good morning everyone and welcome and thank you for being part of this program with us. I think there's a lot of material to cover, but um, we're ready to do it. I'm Judge Nancy Holtz. I'm a mediator and arbitrator at JAMS. I was on the Superior Court in Massachusetts for 15 years and since then I've been doing mediations and arbitrations and um, I'm here today to talk about video conference mediations in particular, because I've had experience in the past doing them. And now with the coronavirus, um, it's kind of the only game in town. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later. And thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Deb Curran with O'Brien Navine Court Reporting. I'm the Director of Business Development and Senior Account Executive. And I just wanna thank everyone for the opportunity to participate and help attorneys keep their discovery on track during this time of remote um, working. So we are ready and able to help you and look forward to the session. Thank you so
3: much. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Allison Eggers. I'm a partner at Syfar Shaw in our Boston office, where I practice in the general areas of commercial litigation, securities, and franchise work. Uh, I'm here today to learn as much as I can from Deb and Judge Holtz uh, about the way forward, just as much as you all are. So I'm excited for the balance of the presentation. And I do want to thank the BBA for putting on a great program and making an effort to keep us all up to date and moving forward during this difficult time. And also thanks to Michael, who's going to lead us through the discussion today. Thank you.
0: Thank you all. And I'm Michael Kippins. I'm a litigation associate at Syfarth Shaw, where I generally practice commercial litigation with a few focus areas in franchise disputes, antitrust liability, and trade secret and non-compete work. So we'll move to a discussion of court closures and the implementation of emergency rules. So I put some some information up on the slide. I won't read every bit of it. I know that's a bit tedious, so I'll just sort of run through some of the highlights. The idea is basically that courts have all closed to, Massachusetts state courts have all closed to the general public and are open in person for emergency matters only. So they sort of have split emergency matters into in-person emergency matters, which are of the utmost importance, and then emergency matters that are gonna be conducted virtually. So with respect to certain deadlines that might be imposed in any particular uh, case, uh, filing deadlines have been told. So the idea is any, any deadline that was after March 16th, will have the remaining days after march 16th will be added after may 4th so for example if your deadline for your filing was march 24th so there are eight days after march 16th you would have those eight days extended after may 4th similar situation with statutes of limitations which have been told uh, through may 3rd the idea is that these dates are in connection with governor baker's order that essential businesses stay closed through May 4th as of right now. So these these dates are all subject to change likely with respect to any changes in a government in a governor's order. Injunctions are to remain in effect until they can be heard. So to the extent there are any injunctions in place that might have expired between the time of March when the courts closed and May 3rd or May 4th when the courts are scheduled at this point to reopen, those injunctions will stay in place and motions can be filed to a certain extent for hearings following that date. Civil trials that were scheduled to be uh, commenced before May 4th are going to be continued for obvious reasons and they're not going to impanel juries at this point And bench trials can go forward with a very limited exception, which is when the parties agree and it's a bench trial and it can be conducted virtually. So to the extent that there are parties that want to move forward with their cases on an emergency basis, that option is open to them, uh, obviously with the court's consent. Clerk's offices have essentially closed. There are smaller numbers of crews that are fielding those offices at the moment, which has created a bit of a slowdown, particularly because the state court system has not had a very robust e-filing system uh, for a very long time. So there are some some kinks to work out there, and there are a number of sources and resources that we can use, including the links that I provided below for e-filing. Uh, The first link is basically an instruction uh, page for the courts where it will let you know how to manage the e-filing systems for the trial courts, the appeals courts, the appeals court, and the SJC. The second link gives you information on which trial courts courts and appellate courts have active e-filing systems. Uh, with respect to federal courts, the courts are sort of open in one respect and closed in another. So, you can go into the courts for purposes of filing, but the public counters have closed. What they've done is they've created drop boxes essentially for filing purposes where they collect twice a day and the entry date for each of the filings will be when the filing was docketed in the uh, CMECF system. system. Emergency rules for the federal courts is, are essentially the same as the state courts with respect to judicial discretion. And judges have basically said, where a where a matter can be conducted virtually, it will be conducted virtually. No reason to unnecessarily bring people into court. Um, non-emergency filings have been continued. So similar to the state court system, uh, Similar to the state court system, there are a number of deadlines that have moved and for a period of time, uh, certain deadlines have been extended and all of that information can be found on the court's website. Uh, Jury trials and court mediations at the district court have been continued past May 29th at the moment, and those are obviously subject to change as well. the one note that I would make is that certain courts, including the first district, have said that their deadlines for notices of appeal and for petitions for review, sort of things that you can file without any other intervention will go forward as, de- their deadlines will go forward as they are. So those have not been continued, but also that those rules are subject to change and e-filing will continue as usual through the, C- the court's CMECF system. So now we'll move into a discussion of what constitutes an emergency during this time. And unfortunately for us, not all of the courts have a uniform way of describing what an emergency is, but fortunately for us, there are resources. And this first link that I've provided is a link to the courts, the state courts standing orders for the housing court, land court, superior court, uh, as well as the other courts, uh, the other trial courts in Massachusetts, and all of that information is in one local place so that you can find it as need be. There's a strong preference for criminal matters being heard over civil matters for obvious reasons. And to my understanding at this point, there are basically civil matters have come to an essential stop allowing for criminal matters to be heard uh, with great priority. I put some examples below of emergency matters that are in-person matters for the Superior Court in Massachusetts. And those are the Mary Moe petitions, which information is below, as well as any matter that essentially a party has, has filed a motion with a judge or has indicated to the court that it's impracticable to appear virtually or something that involves constitutional rights protection. Uh, For the district courts and the Boston Municipal Court, they've actually provided a list that names all of the emergency matters that they are typically holding, and these are the matters that are being held virtually. Uh, The list, I selected a bit of the list, but these are some of the matters that are being heard in Massachusetts district courts and the Boston Municipal Court. Obviously, a lot of the cases, as with the Superior Courts, uh, have focused on criminal matters, and the helpline at the bottom of the screen indicates uh, a number that you can call if the specific clerk's offices in the courts that you're dealing with have not either provided an answer or haven't gotten back to you, or you just have a question that otherwise has not been answered. With respect to the federal court, As I said, they're they're open in one respect, but hearings before the judges are being conducted virtually uh, for the vast majority of cases. The courts have issued a notice that relies on the openness of courts and wants to ensure that public access to hearings and matters in the courts remains open, even if virtual, so that's a link to the public access. And the other link below is uh, where all information for uh, COVID-19 related issues for the federal courts can be found. And now I'll turn it over to Allison Eggers for a discussion of potential consequences for circumventing emergency rules.
3: Thank you, Michael. I think in general, what we're seeing is that the potential consequences for attempting to circumvent emergency rules are much as they are during uh, what was the normal type of litigation environment except amplified a little bit by the crisis and the overlay that COVID-19 puts on top of every uh, motion for emergency relief. One very interesting case that came out in the last couple of weeks that brings together a lot of these potential consequences, at least three of the four of them that are up here on the screen, came out of the Northern District of Illinois in the middle of March Uh, It's the Art Ask Agency case, and this was an order on a motion for reconsideration. Now, go back in time a couple of weeks and keep in mind that middle of March is when a lot of court closures started to happen, a lot of stay-at-home, shelter-in-place, quarantine-type orders started to be issued. So that's the scene going into the discussion of this case. Now just to set the tone, and I'm sure that you can all infer that this does not come out well for the plaintiffs, given the fact that we're highlighting it in this presentation, but literally the opening line in this decision is, quote, this case involves counterfeit unicorn drawings. So that might give you an indication as to how seriously the court thinks of this emergency. So in the Art Ask Agency case, the plaintiff brought a trademark infringement claim against so many parties that they had to actually list them on a Schedule A instead of putting them in the caption itself. And they moved for a TRO against a series of defendants, many of which were located abroad. And requested specifically an in-person hearing. Uh, the court's reaction to this was, quote, the court thought this was a bad time to hold a hearing. Waiting a few weeks seemed prudent. Plaintiffs, as you will discover as I keep describing the case, disagreed with the court's assessment. Now the court flagged a couple of different things as the basis for that decision at the time, and I should say the decision is very short and it's worth a read. It's, uh, it's an entertaining read, but it also is pretty informative about the way a court would go through the analysis of what constitutes an emergency outside of the more obvious life and limb sort of situations. So the things that the court flagged in this discussion, first was the consumption of judicial resources and the court specifically flagged that plaintiff's filings were voluminous. The other thing that the court flagged was the cascade of obligations. And I think that's exactly the phrase that the court used that would flow from an order entered on the TRO. And a couple of the things that the court flagged was the plaintiffs wanted an order that would force financial institutions to lock down various accounts. They wanted an order that would alter the social media platforms and search engine optimizations. Uh, they wanted domains, certain domains to be shut down that were selling these infringing products. And they wanted all of this within a two to three day period. And the court pretty bluntly concluded that the order would either be a nullity or it would distract people with bigger problems right now. Plaintiff obviously disagreed with this. They moved for reconsideration. They argued that plaintiff, and this is in the court's phrasing, will suffer irreparable injury if the court does not put a stop to the infringing unicorns and the knockoff elves. So while that motion was pending, uh, plaintiffs filed yet another emergency motion and teed it up before the designated emergency judge, who that day happened to be the chief judge uh, on the court. And the original, the assigning of the court to which it was assigned in the first place, uh, issued their order on the motion for reconsideration and dropped a blistering quote from Elihu Root that quote, about half of the practice of a decent lawyer is telling would be clients that they're damned fools and should stop. So not surprisingly, and Michael, if you'll advance to the next slide. This did not turn out well for the plaintiffs and we've uh, extracted a little bit from the decision there And then the last three lines, the world is facing a real emergency and plaintiff is not. And the motion for reconsideration is denied. Uh, One other thing that I should flag that the court specifically referenced, and I think this should go without saying when you're seeking a TRO or any sort of injunctive relief is that any of the damages that the plaintiffs were alleging could be solved with money damages later. The, The level of irreparable harm simply didn't rise to the level of a TRO let alone seeking a TRO in this environment. Michael, next slide, please. So with that as the backdrop, we wanna talk a little bit about uh, considerations for litigation itself during a prolonged quarantine. Next slide. And one of the conversations that we've been having a lot is whether or not the definition of emergency should change. I'm of the opinion that the answer to that is flatly no. I think we have an excellent working definition of emergency Uh, I don't think there's any reason to set precedent moving forward as to what constitutes an emergency and what does not, particularly in this environment. Civil litigation may be held up for an extended period of time, but as we'll discuss when we get to the next slide, it turns out there's an awful lot that we can do as litigators to move cases forward, even when we don't have the constant attention of courts. I think potentially this could go on for quite some time, But we are seeing a slow expansion of cases that are heard in person or virtually. And I think as capabilities increase, both in terms of willingness and also just technological capabilities, wiring more courts, uh, getting uh, more litigants online or using Zoom, Skype for business, as those capabilities increase and patience decreases, uh, and a desire to sort of move back into something closer to normal, I think we'll see an expansion of the types of cases that courts are willing to hear uh, either not necessarily on an emergency basis, but as essential matters or under those catch-all provisions that Michael mentioned earlier about any other matters that courts deem necessary or appropriate to be heard in person or virtually. One other thing we have on this slide is the potential effect of limited court resources on settlement leverage. And we've heard a lot of conversations about that just among colleagues or with uh, friends and and associates elsewhere. I actually think that the the limited court resources is gonna have less of an effect on settlement leverage as the economic downturn in general will. So far, we see a lot of feedback coming in from clients that are looking to settle cases to sort of get it off the plate, um, to, to be able to focus on other things. And on the flip side, and I do mostly defense work, Um, So as a defense attorney, I've settled with a fair number of plaintiffs over the last, you know, couple of weeks or or month and a half now, whatever it is, um, who either need the money, they need the certainty, or they want to turn off the legal bills. So I think that what's driving any sort of settlement leverage in this environment has less to do with uh, the inability to immediately get before a judge and more to do with the economic downturn itself. Michael, next slide, please. So what can we do as litigators during quarantine? As I said, it turns out we can do a whole lot more than we probably thought we could do if you'd asked us this question a couple of months ago. I think most people have found the transition to working from home or working with clients remotely challenging, but probably more from a technological perspective and just changing the way that we do business. But by and large, everything else moves forward much as it did. We still have federal rules and state rules to comply with. We still have case management life cycles that are very much the same. Um, and, And there's a lot that we can keep pushing forward during this time that doesn't require direct intervention by courts. One thing that I have noticed is that client counseling and expectation management is very critical during this point in time, particularly as you're looking at bringing on new matters or filing new claims. And the reality is that we don't know what the world is gonna look like a week from now, let alone a month or two from now. And I think it's important to be upfront with clients as you're talking about the possibility of bringing new matters, um, that we don't know what it's gonna look like and we don't know what the pace of the case is going to be, but that an awful lot can move forward during this time. There are certainly some places in civil litigation that are more challenging than others and working remotely. Uh, For example, I have a case right now where we're at the stage where we should be collecting documents for review and production. That's obviously not going to happen. There's nobody at the office and there's nobody to collect these documents remotely. So that's one of those places where you may get held up by the stay at home or quarantine orders. But by and large, this doesn't alter a lot of what we should be doing on a regular basis. One thing I will throw in here for a challenge uh, that I I had not actually thought much about until I was talking to one of my colleagues this morning is thinking strategically about what happens to cases as you move forward looking at trial. I think this changes some of the strategic decisions that we might make in case management uh, and in litigation strategy. So for example, the colleague that I was speaking with this morning about this presentation, and he, he shared this story with me, He has a case that's gearing up for trial. Obviously, the trial itself has been kicked because of the delays uh, in holding trials. But discovery in this case was closed in 2019, and there was a witness who was disclosed on the Rule 26 disclosure that his opposing counsel chose not to depose for strategic reasons, and then has now decided that since this witness is moving out of state and may not be available, they wanted to depose this person after the close of discovery. So they moved to reopen discovery in this case for the limited purpose of taking this specific deposition and cited the coronavirus uh, pandemic as the reason that they need to get this testimony uh, taken now on video. And the court said, absolutely not. You made a strategic decision uh, not to take this deposition. You made a strategic decision not to get it by video had had you decided to take the deposition. And we're not gonna rewrite the standard rules of civil procedure based on what you now think is an emergency situation. So that was an interesting reminder to me that the rules still apply. We may be working in a slightly different environment, to put it mildly, um, but, but we still have to comply with the rules and expect that they're going to be enforced with limited exceptions as courts have outlined in their standing orders and modifications to chamber's preferences. One other thing that I'll flag is that there is a lot of opportunity here. Uh, We've already talked a little bit about settlement leverage and settlement potential. I think we'll see an increased use of mediation and arbitration virtually as a way to put disputes to bed at a time when people want to think about other things. Uh, But it's also a great opportunity to push your cases forward uh, in a way that you may not be able to do if you have deadlines piled up and numerous cases coming in and being managed at the same time. So I have a couple of clients who have specifically said, this is a great opportunity for us to get our expert reports squared away, to get good drafts of our dispositive motions going, to prep witnesses virtually, so that they're ready for their 30B6s or for their depositions when those times actually come. So the slowdown to the extent you're experiencing one does bring some opportunity to try to get a little bit ahead in cases and to be better positioned when we come out of the end of this, whenever that is, To go back to uh, driving litigation forward either toward uh, dismissals or trials themselves. The last thing I'll add is that we really should embrace the remote platforms for witness preparation, depositions, arbitration, and mediation. I think it's going to be the only way forward for some of these things for many months. And I will admit that I have found over the last couple of weeks that it's not my clients who are behind embracing virtual meeting technology, it's me uh many of them are far more comfortable they use skype for business every day they share their screens every day with colleagues in offices around the country or around the world i'm the one that's uncomfortable they're the ones who are ready to move forward with it and so i think it's time for a lot of us to just learn some new procedures some new techniques and some new tricks and to move forward with the reality that we're all dealing with at the moment and with that michael i'll turn it back
0: to you thank you allison Much appreciated, and now we will move over to a discussion of those remote platforms for uh, depositions, witness prep, and arbitrations, and over to Deb Curran, thank you. Oh, Deb, you gotta unmute.
2: It's such a great segue to what we're seeing here at O'Brien Levine, and um, we've received many calls over the last few weeks about setting teams up digitally and that's a common thread, virtual, digital and challenge. Those are sort of three words that we hear often. And for O'Brien Levine in, um, here is that it's, this is pretty seamless for us. Video conference has been around for quite some time. Video recordings of depositions is, is in place. And also the key element here, the court having the court order to allow the court reporter to swear in the witness remotely has been absolutely key to the confidence for attorneys to proceed with their depositions. Um, one of the couple couple elements here in video conferencing, so pre- preparation and testing is essential. So our team here at O'Brien Levine prepares you, prepares your witness, prepares opposing counsel, especially since now we're all home, everyone's Wi-Fi bandwidth is so different. Some people don't have cameras on their computers. Some people are on iPad. So what our team does is we prepare each person who's attending that proceeding the links we're using to connect by video conference are secure. In addition to that, we're also providing helpful tips for um, a, a productive um, experience. And on the recording testimony, so everyone talking about preserving witness testimony, um, in, depending on your case, so the videographer is available remotely. The videographer is capable of starting and stopping the proceeding along with timestamps. So, in the full workflow at the end of that proceeding, We have the capability to provide you with the tools that you need like video synchronization. Um, Next slide please. Exhibits. Exhibits here is the key element to your discovery process and that is most times what drags the digital process down. Um, Exhibits live digitally most of the time and for some reason the day of the proceeding we all start printing our exhibits and getting them ready in these beautiful red wells and binders and folders and it just looks lovely on the table. The reality is that is not necessary at this time. Um, So there's capability for litigators to upload, mark documents, introduce them, annotate them, and have them available during that proceeding and after, immediately after the depositions. Um, The software mirrors the paper process, so you have no more copies, no more shipping, and no more chasing exhibits at the office. And one of the software tools that we find is um, most useful is a software called eDepose. So we have been training a lot of attorneys uh, this week and in weeks past on how to get caught up to speed with um, process of digital exhibit sharing. And very many successful stories. In fact, Lawyers Weekly interviewed an attorney who took a deposition a few weeks ago and published his experience. and in, in terms of a full digital workflow, another key element is having access to a repository. So where do those transcripts go? Where do those exhibits go when we're done? Um, how do I schedule this? So having a repository and a service that's available to you is a, is another key element to maintaining a digital virtual workflow that isn't challenging. You know, we walk you through the steps and provide support. So. Um, having a repository to access transcripts with those linked exhibits that you share through edepose or another platform that you choose. Um, having electronic file formats that work for your, your firm. So there are some firms that have very specific digital file formats that request in addition to PDFs. And understanding that, is this security? How do I feel about that? Um, so th- those are important issues to think about and have under your belt in your back pocket. Wherever you want to place that security of um, conducting remote depositions for witness prep and arbitrations as well. Next slide, Michael. Um, Training. So, you know, hearing Allison say, you know, I'm the only one not ready. And um, so the training comes from our team, and that's the the start of the conversation. How does this happen, Deb? How does this happen, O'Brien Levine? Our team is here and ready to help. Training uncovers challenges. So what are your challenges? What do you, what do we need to help you overcome? How do we work through the technical issues that you're having in your home space? You know, is it the lighting? Is it the bandwidth? Is it something that you're just not aware of? Um, So these training sessions, if you will, help build confidence and prepares everyone in in a way that um, you can, again, participate and conduct a productive experience. Um, The biggest thing here, honestly, is having the support. Who can I turn to? Who can help me during these proceedings? Um, O'Brien Levine provides full support leading up to and during the proceedings. So for us, we're here and very uh, ready to help. We have done several remote depositions this week using um, the video conferencing platforms as well as the digital exhibit sharing platforms. And I'm sure questions have come going to come up and arise and we're here to help. So if you do have questions, I put a little um, link there. If you're interested, you can email demo at court-reporting.com. For more information, we can kind of dig in and offer you a free demo, or you can just put it into the Q&A chat. We'll get to you after after the session is through, but I'll turn it back to Michael. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Deb, for that discussion. Much appreciated and uh, a great discussion of how to make sure that you're really taking, and taking advantage of all of the opportunities that the technology allows and the help and tips that can be provided from outside solutions like uh, O'Brien and Levine. And now I will turn it over to Judge Holtz for a discussion of remote mediations and arbitration. Oh, Judge Holtz, I think you're still
1: muted. Sorry, um, I had to make sure there were there weren't barking dogs in the background while everyone else was presenting. Um, you know, hazards of the trade these days, working from home. So um, a lot of what what Deb and Allison have both touched on dovetails really nicely into what I too want to talk about. The you know the caption or the theme of today is getting back to business and look the bread and butter of of all for all litigators is getting your cases resolved and the ways that that happen are through settlement through arbitrations or through trials, trials are off the table, and so we have to look at the potential for doing virtual arbitrations and mediations. I'd like to mostly talk about mediations because I think that most people have had some exposure, whether it be through video conference um, depositions, 30b, you know, dep- you know, video depositions, um, maybe have taken testimony um, for later trial um, on video. You kind of have that flavor anyway, so I, I really don't want to focus on that, except to say that. That, you know, arbitrations do work and lend themselves very nicely to video conferencing. And I know that sometimes people say, um, "Well, they're concerned. Are you really going to be able to get the flavor, the feel of a witness if they're just on video as opposed to in person?" In terms of having the fact finder be able to assess their credibility. And you know, I would just say, when I hear that, I think, "Are you kidding?" When I think about the resolution on the cameras, on some, even our laptops, our iPads, you can see every last tiny little imperfection on someone's skin hair whatever so the idea that you're not going to be able to see a witness who seems a little smirky or shifty (laughs) or nervous um it just it just doesn't make sense to me so um arbitrations those to me um should should be provide a really a really good opportunity to be able to proceed forward with, with resolution. Mediation, not so much. A lot of people are more concerned about mediation because they they wonder how will this happen? How you know can we really get that back and forth? That um, you know momentum going to be able to to be able to get a settlement a settlement reached. Well, I'll tell you the good news. Part one and part two. Part one is that JAMS has been doing a load of these mediations since the coronavirus um, pandemic has really kicked into high gear and everything has closed up we have right now i think about 500 of these on our calendar um, people have been doing them i've been doing them and also in the past i mean i've done mediations via zoom over the past few years i've had one where the parties a uh, business to business dispute parties were in hawaii another one um, one of the parties was in London, another one, the parties were is in Istanbul, and every single one of them I was able to settle um, by way of a video conference mediation. So how does it work? I'm not going to go through a demonstration, I'm not going to give you um, a lot of the real nuts and bolts and get really granular, except to say that at JAMS what we do is we begin, when we start a mediation, with a pre-hearing with a pre-hearing session, a test session, and during that session we would take you through, um, you know, kind of the technical part. Like Deb, was talking about probably not unlike her process which would be an opportunity to have people kind of understand the technology if you've got any connectivity issues um, if you want to know for example if an attorney wants to do a a video or powerpoint or what have you during an opening session you know you might want to make sure you understand how to do that so all those opportunities are there Um, and then we also talk a little bit about the security and again jams we host the um, we host the through, uh, through Jam software, but it, Zoom is the, is, the, um, is the vehicle that we use. We use a waiting room feature. So I know some people may be concerned, you've heard about Zoom bombing and people crashing into meetings. That can't happen because we use a waiting room feature, which means only a case moderator or the mediator can let people in to the mediation which brings me to the next point. Um, I mentioned the word case moderator. You all know it jams when you start a case, you have a, you have a case manager who does all the paperwork with you. Well, we have assigned case moderators to every single one of our mediations that we are doing by video conference. And this person is kind of the, the technical wonky person who can help you with all your technical problems, concerns, questions, and will give you the demo, take you through it. And that person is available before the mediation, as well as during the entire of the mediation. So again, is you don't have to understand the technology and you don't have to even be good at Zoom. All you need to know how to do is click a link and the mediator will bring you into a private caucus room with your client, will bring you into a joint session. And this will all be reviewed in that, in that test, in that test session. And the other thing I think what I hear about is people want to understand, well, you know, for example, we settle the case. Um, how do we paper it at the end? Well, exchanging that kind of information is really easy. You have ahead of time, sometimes the attorneys, as in any other mediation, they might want to exchange term sheets. But you have the opportunity. And I just want to show you, for example, to do screen share and let me see if I can do this. I don't know if I can or not. Um, Well, I won't show you because I don't want to, I'm looking at the time as well. You can share a document. So for example, at the end of a mediation, you have a few terms as as defense counsel, you you put up on a screen with the mediator and plaintiff's attorney. These are the three or four things that I would like to see in, in just an MOU. Plaintiff might type back in a couple of little tweaks. You go back and forth. One thing that we'll talk about in that test session is the need to decide ahead of time which is very helpful well how will you formalize that MOU will you agree to just using your name in italics with the the backslash s will you want to use electronic signatures it's all easy it's all really easy to do and again the case moderator can kind of help walk walk you through that Um, what I do as well is sometimes you know you're talking to your clients and they're thinking they just don't really know how can this work they don't have the confidence and I know that you have, to, you have to weigh in the time and the economic expense of something like this. You may have a client who's going to say to you, well, you know, I don't want to just be on some video chat for a couple hours, waste my time and my money and nothing comes of it. So, you know, what, what I do is I've always, and I would certainly encourage anyone that's interested, if you're interested in mediation, if your client in getting them somewhat committed to it, it's really easy. Um, I'm happy to take someone through it before you make a decision whether or not even want to use me as a mediator you want to mediate. Um, It's something that's available and once I think people see the technology and see how easy it is, um, usually they're willing to go forward with it. And as I started this um, little um, presentation, I mentioned that it works. I've done these mediations, they do work. People wonder about that arc to the day and you really have to do the same thing you would do if this were live is the biggest way, the biggest, you know, kind of tips and practices for video conference mediation is the same one I I would give to you if we were talking about a live mediation. You have to prepare your client, not just prepare your case and come in with an advocacy position, but rather you come in with your client as a counselor to your client. And, you know, Allison rightly touched on a lot of reasons why it's a great time to look at settling some of your cases now. And it's not just, you know, the looming trial date that everyone feels they can use as the bludgeon to maximize their position, but rather people have to start making some real practical economic decisions and, you know, Litigation that's kicking around is one of those things that you have to think about, and especially let's face it, in Massachusetts, um, you know, ticking at 12% interest um, is something that it really doesn't always make sense to say we'll just kick the can down the road and maybe in three, six months, whenever um, you know we get back on track, who knows what that date will be. So those are some things that I think that um, you know just to touch on from 30,000 feet, I want you to be thinking about. The tips and practices beyond that, Deb touched on those as well. You know, there's a a lot of different sites, um, YouTubes and whatnot that can give you advice on lighting, positioning your camera, and those are all things you can also go over with the case moderator, together with the mediator. But again, as with any other mediation, if you wanna settle your case, That's the biggest tip I can give you is you and your client have to have that commitment. And if you're committed to compromising and committed to discussing and negotiating, The case will settle if you come in and your plan is to try to dazzle the mediator and or the other side with all the reasons why you're right and the other side is wrong and your intention is to fight the battle all day then you will do a magnificent job no doubt but at the end of the day you will just hit end meeting and you will not have a settlement so zoom mediations video conference mediations um, they're the same but different But they are the same you have to bring your tools that you would to any other mediation so i think that we had talked about making sure we had some time for some questions of any of the subjects whether they be the emergency um, access to the courts or um, some of the more technical things that go with video conference mediation or the like so michael does it make sense to take some questions
0: yes thank you judge holtz for that i think it is a good time to take questions uh, and a few have come through the Q&A function. So I will start with one that I think can go to both uh, Judge Holtz and to Deb, which it has to do with the numbering of exhibits prior to uh, hearings and how to change those exhibit numbers if or add other exhibits to the extent that that is something that uh, needs to be done on the day of.
1: Deb, that's above my pay grade. I'll let you take that one.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. It comes up quite often. And the software tools that we use are very intuitive. So you don't need to pre-mark, you don't need to PDF them to the court reporter and email them in advance. The tools that we're using allows you to um, bring up an exhibit sticker if you need to change it. So some cases are consecutive numbering you've already halfway through your process. You can change that number starting with, and then the next section, the software is intuitive to know that the next number is 13 instead of 12. Um, in addition to that, um, at the end of the proceeding, all of those exhibits are marked and, sh- and stored into your um, software, as well as opposing counsel receives a courtesy copy. So that exhibit sticker is key for sure, but it's very simple process, and you don't need to pre-mark them.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, and one question uh, directed to Judge Holtz, which is whether you're seeing or hearing about changes in the willingness to settle business disputes, uh, based on effects of COVID-19 shutdowns, uh, and their the businesses revenues, uh, being at their bottom lines.
1: Well, it, look, that's definitely, um, that's definitely an issue. And I think that, you know, it's, it's just, just like every case is different. Every business is different. There are some businesses that, um, you know, Con- contrary to what you know Allison was saying which I think applies to many the converse is equally true there are businesses that you know that you know there there is there is no money to pay for legal fees to pay for a mediation let alone to fund a settlement so in those instances there probably are going to be cases where where a business is just going to decide if at all practical they're just going to tap the brakes and they're not going to um you know Want to go forward, because if there is a settlement, um, a business to business settlement, that business that's hurting like the one on the other side of the V is going to have to think about how would they fund this how would they fund the settlement. Um, with insur- you know obviously if there's insurance the carriers um, you know have the ability to do that but i think just an act a business and we're not talking about with an insurance overlay i think that's definitely a factor for some businesses not wanting to go forward but as i talk to people i think the bigger the bigger reluctance is just you know well, how's this going to work and so the big part of it is saying i'll i'll get on a zoom call you don't have to you don't have to pick me i'm happy just to just to walk you through it and just give it a shot i think you'll be happy with it
0: Great, thanks. Uh, And so we have two questions now about uh, tolling issues with respect to emergency access to the courts. The first is whether there's been an impact on the filing of complaints and whether people are barred from doing so. So the answer to that, I believe, is no. There is no bar to filing a complaint at this point. Um, As I said, in the federal courts, there are drop boxes within the courthouses to actually. file complaints if you want to do it that way. Obviously, the CMECF system is also available for that purpose. Uh, In the state courts, uh, mailing into the clerk's offices is one way since uh, the general public is not allowed in the courts at this point. So that's the answer to that. The second question on tolling is whether any tolling deadlines have applied to service deadlines, for example, for Superior Court Rule 9A. Uh, So I will say that I have not seen a particular standing order that addresses whether Superior Court Rule 9A will function as it normally does, other than to the extent that the deadlines for actually filing the 9A package in the court uh, would be affected by the standing orders. And then we have another question. Uh, So I'll send this one over to Allison if she happens to have an answer to this. The question is, other than the veritable bench slap for filing unnecessary motions as emergencies, have you come across any situations where uh, attorneys, have been, attorneys or litigants have been sanctioned for doing so?
3: So far, I have not. I'm not aware of any case where a litigant has been actually sanctioned for bringing a non-emergency uh, motion on an emergency basis with respect to the COVID situation. I think it's probably a little bit early for us to be at that point yet. Uh, I've I've spoken to a couple of uh, clerks uh, that I know, just professionally and from my own clerking past, uh, and they have said that with a lot of cases, they've seen just a real slowdown, if not a virtual halt in their civil litigation load at this point, but that they're expecting an increase as the um, crisis goes on beyond. So I think the opportunity will be there at some point. Somebody will probably earn uh, an actual sanction, Uh, But so far, no, I haven't seen any actual sanctions issued uh, for that reason.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, And now a question, um, is there an additional cost for the use of e depose in a deposition?
2: Um, That's a really good question. And so, yes, there is an additional cost to using e depose And um, what I do want to note um, during this time, however, there is no additional cost to use the video conference services that we're offering or the training during this time that we are working home safely and in this COVID situation. So it's sort of our way to give back to the community that uh, you can still function and everyone can pr- be productive. But the, the question for, um, additional question for you to pose is yes, there is an additional charge.
0: Great, thank you. And so let's see, I think we have a couple of other questions. Has there been any discussion about expanding e-file MA uh, to the remaining superior courts? So I haven't come across any discussion of that. I take it that the individual courts will update their standing orders. They tend to be done on an almost daily basis at this point with regard to updates and amendments to the standing orders. Uh, I haven't seen anything that specifically says, specifically for Suffolk, for example, that E-filing will become online or is being worked on to roll out the online e-filing uh, or anything like that. So I, I would suggest just continuing to go to the court's website to ensure that you're up to date on the latest information about which courts are accepting e-filing and whether or not there will be uh, projected updates to the e-filing system for other courts. Okay. Okay. Uh, has there been any discussion in the courts for improving access to case dockets and materials using the mass courts website which is historically buggy? Not sure which one of us is best equipped to answer that question so I'll throw it out to the entire group.
3: I haven't seen or heard anything along those lines. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's an effort moving forward to try to expand access as much as possible. As we start to rely on virtual technologies, but I haven't seen any reporting or heard any gossip uh, about that sort of expansion at this point.
0: Okay. Next question, is there any information about court orders extending statute limitations and other statutory deadlines that relate to jurisdiction? For example, time to file an interlocutory appeal. So, Uh, As with other things, I think that the standing orders are the first place to go for this information. I have not seen specific statutory deadlines for jurisdiction be addressed, but to the extent that the standing orders address general statutory deadlines, I think that many of those have been told for now, and for cases that are currently active have been continued for some some number of days past the deadline, the original deadline. Uh, for the question of will the PowerPoint slides be available after the presentation, the answer to that is isn't simple yes. That one's an easy one. And we have a, an answer to a question it looks like. So uh, someone has let us know that time deadlines for removal to federal court and to file notice of appeal have not been told at this point. Similarly to how I said the First Circuit has said notices of appeal and petitions for review have not been told. Essentially because those can be filed as a matter of course, I would take it that deadlines for, court remo- for federal court removal would be similar in that vein. But I think the idea is you want to get that information directly from the clerk's office if you can and to contact them if you have any particular questions. So I think that's all the questions that we have. So I will note that uh, SyFarth does have a COVID-19 Resource Center that regularly lists updates to both uh, national resources and Massachusetts specific resources on how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting uh, litigation practice and other types of practice throughout, uh, throughout Massachusetts and throughout the country. So I would suggest uh, visiting that website to the extent you have questions and we'd be happy to help. And with that, I would like to say thank you to all of the panelists, uh, first and foremost, for participating in today's webinar, as well as the BBA for hosting us and for the participants who have stayed on with us for this time and have posed questions. So thank you.